Hey, everybody, welcome back to the Blister Podcast on the one and only Blister Podcast Network. I'm Jonathan Ellsworth, and you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. So, for a number of different reasons, recently I have been thinking a lot about brand building and how brands create lasting product lines and products and basically grow stronger as a brand and develop rich brand histories and strong brand identities. And so for this conversation, I invited our bike editor, David Golay, and blister running editor, Matt Mitchell, to join me in thinking through these things and to see what insights we might be able to gain by looking at various brands and manufacturers in the ski, bike, and running industries and putting these industries in conversation with each other to help us get a sense of which industries are doing certain things better than another and to see if we came to certain best practices or principles that we thought basically all companies should be operating on regardless of what segment of the outdoor industry they happen to reside in. This turned out to be a really good conversation with David and Matt. That's not surprising. These are two extremely sharp people. And they both also happen to be the hosts of two of our other Blister podcasts. David Golay hosts our bike podcast, Bikes and Big Ideas, and Matt Mitchell hosts our running podcast, Off the Couch. And both of them lead really smart, good, fun, interesting, and informative conversations over on those two feeds. So be sure to check those out if you aren't already in the habit of listening each week. And we'll include links to Bikes and Big Ideas and Off the Couch in the show notes of this episode. And finally, since we are now in multi-sport season, where I know a number of you like me, are still skiing, some of you are mountain biking, many of you are running, also like me, by the way, and a number of you are out paddling too. Well, I want to remind you about our Blister Plus membership and the injury insurance that comes along with every Blister Plus membership. And the gist here is if you get hurt, or I hate to say it, but you know it's actually when you get hurt, if you either don't currently have insurance or you do have insurance, but you have a high deductible where you would have to pay $1,000 or $2,000 or $5,000 or $12,000 out of your own pocket, if anything happens to you, well, then you are exactly the person for whom we created this Blister Plus membership with injury insurance. And with Blister Plus, should anything happen to you and you need to take an ambulance ride to the hospital or you wreck, think you might have a concussion and need to get checked out, you can now go to the emergency room and you will now have $25,000 worth of injury coverage per incident. And that comes with a $0 deductible. Every one of us on the Blister team now has this coverage, 
And I am certain that the vast majority of you listening to this right now would benefit from this Blister Plus coverage. So we will also include a link in the show notes of this episode to all the relevant details for this Blister Plus membership of ours. So please check it out, sign up, and then go get after it. And now let's get to my conversation with our bike editor, David Golay, and our running editor, Matt Mitchell. Here we go. All right, well, I am very happy to be here with our running editor, Matt Mitchell, and our bike editor, David Golay. Gentlemen, nice to see you. It's been, I don't know, less than 24 hours, I think, since I was talking to each of you. So, you know, there's that. But this is maybe a bit of a strange conversation that I have proposed. That's okay. We don't mind strange around here. And part of this has to do with some stuff that I've just been pretty obsessed with lately in terms of brand building and the staying power of brands and kind of the rise and fall of brands. And then I started subjecting David to this conversation because I'd been thinking about it a ton on the ski side of things. And then I forced David to start thinking through this with me on the bike side of things. And then I was like, you know what? Wait a second. Let's do a mashup on these broader topics, but let's kind of be thinking about the ski industry in conjunction with the bike industry, in conjunction with the running industry, and see what kind of parallels exist here, or in some cases, where we think certain industries maybe are doing some things smarter than the other two that we're talking about. So please, everybody, consider this sort of a workshop and an invitation to think along some things with us, because this is not going to be some 101 lecture just like rolling out a bunch of answers. So if that wasn't vague and strange enough as an introduction, let's talk a little bit about how we think ski industry versus bike industry versus running industry is doing in terms of creating significant lasting brands relatedly then some significant product lines and then at its most macro level creating individual products that customers are identifying sort of getting connected with and right creating certain legacies or creating staying power either at the specific individual product level the product line level, and then the brand itself. So my goodness, I hope you guys have some smart things to say. Matt Mitchell, I'm going to make you go first here. Talk a little bit, um, maybe at a broader level, like do you think that running shoe companies are doing a good job on this front or does it feel like either stupid to you or kind of chaos? Yeah, I mean, I think speaking specifically as it relates to um, the trail side of things. Um, I think there's a lot of interesting things going on just because of this, like not a renewed focus, but a, uh, a kind of more attention to a growing sport in our country and globally. Uh, more people are getting into trail running and that's reflected in like the amount of offerings. Um, a lot of traditionally 
like shoe companies that would focus on the running side, they're dedicating more resources and and uh, like more technology to uh, building out their trail line. And I think for the most part, I am like pleased with what I'm seeing. Um, there's more models that kind of like reflect uh, the different like, I guess, terrain and uh, like distances that trail running consists of. And that is like even further growing the sport because it's making more accessible to, you know, people that are coming over from a roadside, etc. cetera. Uh, but I do get frustrated with how much turnover there is in models from year to year. I think, uh, for instance, like anecdotally, I have found shoes in the past that I'm like, I really, really enjoy and really gravitate towards. And then the next year, they're replaced by an updated version that my foot doesn't agree with. And working in run specialty, like that is kind of a daily occurrence. And there's there's less excitement about new models now. Um, there's more of like a fear about like, well, will this new iteration work for me? And I think that needs to change um, both from like a sustainability perspective and just a like, I guess, from a runner's point of view. And I would have to say, I mean, as we've been thinking about this and we're going to talk more about sort of product turnover, revising and often like really overhauling products that have come to find a really passionate customer base for them of the ski, bike and running industry. I think I'm pretty willing to say that running would be the quote unquote worst in this regard where like shoes that maybe they're still getting called the same name and they're still in the same product line and they are pretty radically different from that beloved shoe that existed the year before. Right. I think it goes both ways, right? Like from iteration to iteration, sometimes shoe companies completely overhaul a model to where it's like not recognizable at all, or they slap on like a new TPU overlay and jack the price up 10 bucks and are kind of like pushing out essentially the same model. Um, and both I'm, I'm not particularly a fan of. Before we move on to David and to get his thoughts on the sort of what's happening in the bike industry on this front. Why do you think this is? Why do you think so many running companies operate this way? Because I I think you're right. Maybe it's a more vocal minority, but we see this all the time when running shoe companies switch up a product. Mostly what you hear are the people who love the previous model really angry that the thing that they finally found that's working so well for them has changed and it's a little bit of like back to the drawing board. Right. It feels like more of a compulsion than anything else. And I think that's because we, I, in my opinion, we've reached a point where a lot of the gains in like performance from like year to year in issue are pretty marginal. Um, so brands are like, well, how do we kind of like, you know, pump out something new and not let our like lineup become stale. And, uh, that's where that impulse comes comes from, I think. David, how would you assess kind of the state of the bike industry? Yeah, so I think there are a couple of things that are interesting with the bike industry as it stands currently. And one of the big ones is that I think, broadly speaking, companies, and I'm thinking particularly about frame manufacturers here, not worrying about components and stuff so much, are doing a an increasingly good job of 
having a more coherent full line of models that complement each other well and add up to offering a bike that is in the right sort of ballpark genre wise for the majority of riders out there and it wasn't that long ago where you had a lot of companies that had you know maybe a particular area that they excelled in and then had some kind of more incoherent and less well sorted out offerings in other areas and i think they're doing a better job of looking at their product lines as a whole and having things that kind of complement each other and sit alongside each other well rather than or the other thing that happened a bunch in years past not so long ago is you'd have a company that made three different bikes and it wasn't super clear how they really differed from each other that much and they'd be kind of unnecessarily similar and just needlessly confusing and at the same time i think companies are also increasingly making a real point of emphasis of having visual similarity across their product lines and having kind of a similar silhouette for at least most of the bikes they make where it makes sense and you know downhill bikes and things at the extremes of the range tend to vary a bit more but within the more median section of the bell curve they're just making a more strong effort to make all their bikes look similar and so you'd be like that's clearly a santa cruz at a glance that's a pivot that's a yeti whatever uh which doesn't necessarily tie into performance attributes so much but it as a branding exercise i think is really sensible and it's something that people are clearly kind of getting their heads around and doing more because it just makes a much stronger sort of overall vision of the brand because you just because you can tell that a bike is from them at a quick glance without really needing to know a ton about the particulars so just to make sure i'm tracking you on this you are saying that today you think the bike industry generalizing here is doing a better job at clarifying their lines as opposed to putting out a bunch of products where it gets really confusing to people like well, should I go this way or that way in the lineup? I do, yeah. And that's not to say that they're doing it perfectly or anything, but it's getting better and becoming more clear. And I think one of the things that kind of goes in with that is that they're actually doing sort of a better job of making the different models within the line ride truly differently from each other. And I had this conversation with some folks from Santa Cruz, incidentally, recently, where they were kind of like, um, it wasn't that long ago that we were basically just making most of our bikes kind of through the trail through Enduro, which portion of the spectrum really kind of ride like scaled up or down versions of each other. And we realized that that didn't make sense because those bikes are meant to do different things. And particularly in terms of suspension tuning and that kind of stuff, you don't really want your 170 travel Enduro bike to feel the same as your 130 travel trail bike, just with more suspension. Like they're meant to do different things and it makes sense to differentiate them more and companies are doing that better. And I think that helps. Like, so for example, with that Santa Cruz updated most of their lineup last year and the shorter travel bikes in particular, like the tall boy and the high tower, they, changed very little in those updates and said as much they were very open about that and the longer travel stuff like the nomad and the mega tower especially they 
made much more dramatic changes to how they ride and again were correct in their assessment of those things and it pulled them further apart in a way that i think makes the line more coherent and makes the longer travel bikes especially better suited to the things that they're actually supposed to do matt related question in terms of coherence when it comes to a running shoe company's offerings uh, across the whole spectrum. I mean, I, I would say historically, my sense is that running shoe companies have been kind of notorious for like, here's 93 options. And it's basically impossible for you to discern why you might go this way as opposed to these six other ways. Do you think, as a generalization, running shoe companies are gaining the kind of product lineup clarity that David is saying he's kind of seeing in the bike side of things? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it kind of very much depends on the size of the company we're talking about. Um, not to like bash Hoka or anything. I think they make like great products for the most part, but they kind of like dump, you know, 20 different like options in front of you and they all look similarly, which I mean, is like a credit to their aesthetic, I guess. But yeah, you're right. It's like, well, there's a lot of redundancy and with redundancy, you get confusion. Um, whereas a brand that is on the smaller side of things like Topo Athletic, for example, they have a lineup that reflects like the needs of a runner. They have like a shoe that is intended for long distance and then they have a shoe that's intended for like faster workouts and more minimal options. And it's uh, it's definitely more organized. And um, I, I think that probably a balance between the two is where I would like to see the industry go. Yeah, it's very interesting. You just said that more products creates more confusion. And yet we still see this all the time. And, you know, look, this conversation, I definitely could have grabbed some CEOs and marketing directors, et cetera, from a whole slew of companies. And there might be a time where we want to ask some similar questions, do a bit of maybe it's a blister summit, you know, panel session coming up or something like that, or a bit of a round table. But here I kind of, I mean, the three of us spend a hell of a lot of time talking with companies, assessing product lineups, doing very detailed product reviews of this stuff. And so, you know, I think in some of the most basic elements of marketing and branding, one of the things that is often said, I think it's fair to call it like a pillar of best practices, is fewer options are actually better than more options, right? That clarifying this stuff is actually the better strategy now, I'm not sure if I should say if we're talking about long-term strategy versus short-term strategy. So it is a bit surprising to me that so many companies still seem to be spitting out so many different things. And then there's a bit of a related point in terms of like how, how the ski industry is doing on that front. There's certainly a lot of product out there, but... I don't know that I see this horrible confusion happening among individual ski brands where, you know, a company just has 37 different options and I can't make heads or tails over 
why I might go this way versus these six other offerings they have, I think maybe I would want to use the brewery analogy here. So I think in the ski industry, companies are making their their IPA, they're making their stout, they're making their lager, they're making their pilsner. But I think that as a generalization, the ski industry is not doing a terrible job of just offering way too many varieties in terms of their backcountry ski touring lineup, their all-mountain skis, their powder skis, their frontside carvers. I don't actually think that's a, a big problem in the ski industry. The bigger problem that I see in ski equipment is this widespread commitment to the two-year product cycle turnover. And this really motivated a lot of the conversation we're having today for me. The more that I've been thinking about this, this unbending commitment to changing a product, whether or not anybody's asking for that change, and then we might need to get to the, well, who's at, who's anybody here in a second, but... To me, this actually starts to create a sense of these products, right, that are often costing $700, $800, They're almost kind of disposable products. And that strikes me as not a great way to develop a stickiness or attraction or a dedication to a particular product or a particular product line, or even the brand itself, right? Because if every two years, if it's, we talked about this a bit on the running shoe side of things, if there's a ski I love and two years later I've beat it up and I'm, I'm looking to get something new, if that thing has changed a lot or, or maybe four years down the road I'm looking to get something new, if it's a pretty radical thing, well, now I have to kind of go back to the drawing board. And just open up the search across every ski manufacturer or every running shoe manufacturer. And so this is what got me thinking, like, how on earth is this a good thing for individual brands? Thoughts on this? Yeah, I've got a few on the bike side of it. And I think one is that in recent years, the bike industry has been increasingly moving away from doing specific model years of bikes and just updating them kind of when they feel like there's a good reason to. And it's probably the case that they are doing that in some cases just for the sake of making an update uh, and could slow their roll a little bit. But uh, I think at least not feeling beholden to doing it on every two year cycle or whatever is a positive thing. On the other hand, I do think that the bike industry is in a different place from the ski one, at least. I don't know as much about running stuff in that just mountain bike geometry and suspension design and stuff has genuinely evolved a whole lot in the last not very many years. And so it kind of feels to me like there have, by and large, been compelling reasons to update stuff every couple of years because the state of the industry and just general best practices and kind of our understanding of what makes a bike work well has changed enough to drive that. And 
particularly on the geometry side, I think that is really slowing way down now. And so it's going to be very interesting to see where things continue to go from here. And I think it's going to become less and less the case that changes to geometry are going to be what drive the need to make an update to a bike. And like, there are definitely skis from 10 years ago that I am still happy skiing and I think are good and just still totally legit. There's not a bike from 10 years ago that I have any interest in at all. Like just the industry has changed so much that there really genuinely was reason to evolve and move on. So completely agree with that. Right. And it's an interesting case, right? You're saying in the bike industry, things are still evolving so quickly in terms of what's happening with geometry, materials, etc., that you're making the case that changing stuff up every two years, that's actually a reasonable thing to be doing at this point in the industry's history. But Matt, what do you think it looks like on the running side of things? If, if David says there's a, and I agree with him, there's maybe a stronger case to be made for the pretty frequent updates. You agree with that on the running shoe side of things? Well, I think relative to both skis and bike, um, the run side, like <laughs> the products are a lot cheaper relative to both, both of your guys' sports. And um, I think that means that, you know, I, when I buy a mountain bike, I'll own it for like five to six years, right? But when I buy a pair of running shoes, depending on how much I run, that'll last me a couple of months. And I think there's more of a demand um, for new products because um, these companies know that their customers are going to be buying multiple pairs in a given year. So I think it's like partly a desire to want to hook someone on a new product. And also, I think the running industry is very much kind of like beholden to uh like trends like we that is kind of what drives innovation in our sport so if these trends change you know every couple of years right now we're definitely in more of like a maximalist movement so you'll see new shoes come out that add a millimeter or two to their stack height and i think that is like a response to that direction one thing that that makes me think though is you know given that you're potentially burning through a pair of shoes every couple of months that almost feels like in some ways it makes less of a need to change stuff because you are like as a brand perspective you're going to be selling new stuff to people who are running a bunch kind of no matter what just because the shoes don't last that long and so it doesn't really matter from the sales perspective maybe if the shoe is different or not if you know you have to buy five pairs a year or whatever it is but i think the act of like buying the same pair of shoes like does something kind of like psychologically if that makes any sense like i know that i get excited when i get to like when i get I rather i get bored of buying the same pair of shoes again and again and again oftentimes even if it's working for me see man you know since i'm basically a professional runner matt man i just feel like you can specifically with running you get in the wrong shoe and now your feet are hurting or your Achilles are feeling weird or your knees aren't feeling quite right. For me, I feel like I would rather find the thing that suits me perfectly and lets me like run 
pain-free rather than rolling the dice on some flashy new designs, but maybe that's just me. Well, I think almost every like subsequent iteration of a shoe is going to be lighter, and that is appealing to people. And I, I think for me at least, there's this assumption that like I will have I will retain the same foot feel, but that it'll be lighter in the next version. You're kind of triggering me right now since I spend so much time of my life railing against ski manufacturers for this like chase to make everything lighter. So um, granted, I can't say that I like feel the same way about running shoes. Like I'm not like put more weight in the running shoe. I've, I don't, I'm not as sensitive on that front, but, um, but that's what you're seeing as a, as the generalization on running. It's more about, can we keep lightening up these products as opposed to messing with drop heights and that kind of thing? I mean, you see both, but generally it's like a no-no if you make a like updated version of a shoe heavier than the previous one. There's kind of this like unwritten rule that every new shoe should be lighter. And do you think you're seeing kind of losses in durability or anything else to go with that? Because the bike industry kind of went through this a while ago where people were really chasing weight for a while and... I don't know, probably five or six years ago, really started having the realization that that was coming at the expense of durability and performance in some areas. And bikes have gotten heavier again. And frankly, I think are better for it. Oh, totally. I mean, especially when you combine that with the maximalist trend where you're like simultaneously increasing stack height, but trying to make a shoe lighter. That means that you're putting in arguably like less durable material. Um, specifically in like foam composites and stuff like that. So you see that a ton. So maybe I should be thinking more. Maybe I need to start railing against running shoe companies as well. Just everything heavier all the time. Damn it. But that's the thing. You know, I the secret is I don't run as much as I ski or bike. So probably that durability thing is less of a... I'm, I'm, I'm noticing that a bit less than in these other uh, other fields. I mean, that's the frontier, right? Is like trying to come up with extremely light foam composites. That's like where a lot of these companies are putting a lot of innovation in. Here is a question, Matt, you kind of brought this up. The like, you know, people, it's not fun to buy the same thing over and over again. And something else you said got me kind of thinking that it sounded a bit like you were almost talking about the fashion industry. And maybe this is a really fair point to raise across all three of these industries. But if I had to say which of the, you know, ski, bike, or running industry operated most closely like the fashion industry, it'd have to be running, right? And I guess that raises a question even, you know, all these running shoe companies, how often are they even selling their products to like hardcore runners versus people that are like, that looks cool. And I can wear that around town or to school or to the office or whatever. Right. Well, I think they are aware of that as well. And companies like Solomon and Hoka have now launched like, you know, streetwear lines, uh, which ironically take some of their like highest performing trail shoes and kind of like put a new colorway on them and add a few like overlays, et cetera, to make them more aesthetically appealing and sell them as like something you would see at the Met Gala. 
um, which I think is kind of interesting, but it all stems from the performance side. So you have to assume that people are buying those shoes. David, do you have any thoughts on is the bike industry basically just trying to be the fashion industry? Not exactly. On the apparel side of things, I do think that there's a very strong element of kind of conformity within given categories of riding where if you are riding a gravel bike, you wear stuff that looks like this. If you are riding that kind of thing is super true and kind of dorky and dumb. But on the bike hard good side of things, I think not really. Okay. So we just talked a bit about the fashion industry. I want to raise the question about do the ski, bike, and or running industries seem to be operating more as if they are tech companies or kind of luxury good companies? Um, And again, this comes back, you know, for me thinking the most about the ski industry and like this commitment, we are going to overhaul these products every two years. Uh, Again, for whatever reason, we just have to figure out something new to do to this thing every two years. And again, as we're raising these broader questions about branding and the rise and fall of brands and how brands develop lifelong customers, right? whether that's to their brand or to certain product lineups or to certain products, you know, this relentless cycle of change at every two years, I started thinking, well, that sounds a whole lot like the tech industry, right? So Apple is releasing the new laptop, the new iPhone every single year. And right now, maybe this is kind of like to what David was saying about the bike industry, these tech companies can continue to find new things right now, whether it's better cameras, longer battery life, more powerful operating systems, etc., to where it kind of can be justified to be doing the. And then sometimes these the complaint complaints like a new iPhone comes out and it's like, yeah, that thing is really barely any better than the one before. So there's one analogy, right? And I started thinking like, yeah, these ski companies are operating as if they're Apple, except it's not the case that we can make a significantly better ski boot every single year, a significantly better iteration of a good ski every single year. So that feels like a bit of a mistake to me. On the other side, we've got like the luxury goods industry, right? And it seems like there, it's all about not changing stuff or at least being a lot slower in terms of real product rollover. And I don't know what to think about this exactly, except I found myself thinking, it sure seems to me like ski companies, if we're talking about creating really strong, powerful brands, they might do well to start operating a little bit more to like, we just introduced this ski. It's fantastic. It's going to work really well for you for the next five, six, eight, ten 10 years. And, you know, certainly looking at like the watches industry, I was thinking about that and thinking about 
some of the strongest brands today in the watch industry literally were created in the 1950s and 60s. The Rolex Daytona, the the Rolex Submariner, the Omega Seamaster or Speedmaster. Those are some of the most sought after best-selling watches today. And we've had, you know, 60, 70 years with these products that frankly have barely changed. Now, I'm glad skis have changed in the last 60 to 70 years. They're way better now than they used to be. David is talking about in the bike industry, you know, that even every two to three years, certainly every five to 10 years, we've seen significant advances. But what are your thoughts on this sort of bike or running companies acting more like tech companies as opposed to luxury brand companies? Yeah, I think uh, on the running side, you you kind of see both, right? Like a lot of companies with their performance models will um, feel a need to update more frequently, especially since like the introduction of like carbon plates, because that is that is a piece of technology that um, came along a handful of years ago and brands are still having fun playing with um, and getting creative with. Uh, but then again, there's also models like the Speed Goat with Hoka that is now in its fifth iteration that they haven't really touched all that much because they know it is kind of this legacy model. So I think it kind of depends um, on what like area of a shoes lineup you're looking at. Yeah, my answer is a little similar to that in that I do think that it's increasingly becoming the case that bike companies are doing a better job of updating things when they have a good reason to and not messing with them too much when they don't. And one thing that I think sort of separates bike from ski or running in this front, too, is that if you're a bike frame manufacturer, you are having to deal with evolving component standards and that kind of stuff. Whereas skis doesn't matter. You're just drilling holes into it and screwing whatever binding on. You don't, you don't have to have these compatibility issues that you run into. So like, for example, in the bike side of things, we're seeing a lot of companies updating their frames where they're just making a new rear triangle for it, but not a new front triangle because they need to put a SRAM UDH on it so that it can work with the new SRAM transmission. And they're kind of getting forced into this frame update cycle because one of the key components that the frame has to interface with has changed in how it mounts to the bike. And so it's a complicating factor there for the bike industry to have to keep up with those kind of things. And so I think as far as how they market themselves and present things, I think, you know, they are in a big way kind of luxury goods and are uh and there's a, a big swath of brands that sort of view themselves as being the quote-unquote premium ones and price their stuff accordingly and have this reputation and there are other brands for whom a big part of their brand identity is being comparatively affordable and more i don't know egalitarian in that way i guess and there's a pretty big range within the bike industry of how those things operate there's not really one consistent answer across the whole industry yeah but i might argue that yes while certain brands are kind of positioning themselves as that premium premium and others are the more affordable maybe kind of every man positioning it's still expensive so we're still 
basically in the, this is one of the funniest things, by the way, is that we mountain bikers are some of the probably most guilty parties here where a lot of us like to think like, you know, yeah, we're just people that like to ride bikes hard and get dirty and go fast and jump off stuff. It's like, yeah, y'all are riding around on these $5,000, $7,000, $9,000 rigs. Like, who are you kidding here? Right? Like, this isn't this isn't like we grabbed a soccer ball and put some trash cans upside down and, you know, we just are playing soccer and it cost us 12 cents to figure out how to do that, you know? So I, there's a funny thing there. Um, I think, like, self-perception versus like looking at these sports and how expensive it is to get into you know the the rigs that we all would look at and be like that thing is absolutely sick and i want that no totally agreed and there is definitely this probably a little bit disingenuous attempt in the bike industry to market itself as being kind of punk rock and scrappy and then like you said it's all being done on wildly expensive equipment that tons of people can't afford and those Two ideas are definitely a bit in tension with each other, but it's there. Yeah. And by the way, and I mean, I actually kind of love this about the ski industry and the bike industry in particular, but I'll still point it out. You know, it's so, and like these same mountain bikers, right, who have this sick new whip might look at somebody who is wearing a watch that might actually cost less than their bike and be like, dude, that's stupid. I can't believe like you pay, spend all that money on that watch. The funny part is a good watch is going to last like a hundred plus years. We go kick the crap out of these mountain bikes and skis. I mean, and, and I, I actually, this is the part I actually like, like people buy this stuff and then we go beat it up. And I kind of dig that, but on some of these other quote-unquote luxury items, those last way longer than these expensive skis and bikes do. So there's there's something I very much like about this, but it's also kind of wild to think about, right? And I think that is kind of creating a ceiling with respect to like quote-unquote luxury items on the run side is because they are like so finite and like, you know, immaterial. Like they're not going to last a year if you run, you know, 40 miles a week, right? This is why my running shoes definitely last more than a, than a year, Matt. So you should maybe, you should maybe take a page out of my book. Yeah. Just less, less, less is more in this example. Yeah, see Matt, less is more. I've been told I need to run less by multiple No one's people, actually so ever told me that. Something. Yeah. Hey, shout out though to me. I did six miles last night, Matt. There we go. Yeah. So, uh, as I think I mentioned on a blister happy hour, every time I run, I feel like I should go knock on all my neighbors' doors and just tell them that because it's like the most proud I ever feel about anything. So yeah, so just over here killing it on the running side of things. It's a lot farther than I have run in a very, very long time. So you got me beat for sure. Okay. Okay. Yeah. And one thing that I'm kind of curious to hear the thoughts that you two have on is I touched on this earlier, but I think it's. From my perspective, at least, it seems easier for a bike company to develop a really cohesive visual identity where all of their models across a range of attributes and uses look visually pretty similar just because you've got kind of a more complex shape where 
you can do more things kind of industrial design wise with the silhouette of them to make them stand out. And particularly with skis, you know, you can do some stuff like moments squared off tips or whatever, but you've got fewer opportunities to do that. And um, because the shape of the thing has so much to do with how it actually performs. Also, you can't just go doing wild stuff visually. And I don't really know how run fits into that, but I'm curious yeah, what you both think on that matter and how important you think it is for companies in those areas to try to foster a really cohesive kind of design image and just overall aesthetic. Yeah, I mean, I think running brands used to be uh, pretty distinct in um, their design identities, but Hoka did a lot to disrupt that. Uh, you know, they came out with shoes that had a ton of stack height, um, were super high off the ground and had a pretty pronounced rocker geometry to them. And the running industry is, you know, liable to a lot of copycatting. So uh, a lot of brands took that idea and, and pardon the pun, but like ran with it, right? So there's been definitely more homogeni homogenization um, with that respect. Like there's kind of fading identities from brand to brand now, I think. Yeah, and it seems like on the running side, it's less about the physical shape of the shoe and more about like logos, you know, and right. I mean, cause still it's, 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 it's worth noting. I think Nike has one of the most identifiable company logos in the history of humankind. Nice job. Congrats, Nike, you know, but I think like that's where we see and seeing, you know, a brand like New Balance or Adidas, et cetera, tweak logos, try to, you know, position things a bit differently from time to time. It strikes me that those logos still have to do a lot of the work because if you remove those logos, it seems like most of the running shoe companies are playing around with some different color schemes uh, certainly shape. You already spoke to that, Matt. Um, but the the logo itself can be such an identifying mark on running shoes. Does that seem right to you? Totally. And I, I think um, colors as well, as you brought up, right? Like I associate Solomon running shoes with primarily black, red, and white. That's kind of like their banner. Whereas Hoka is known for these like garish, um, very vibrant colors. Um, that I think they've developed, a, a, you know, quite a reputation for um, and are often mocked for. Um, but you're totally right. And on skis, turns out logos don't work all that well when you're, the product is often like covered up with snow on top of it. So I think from that point of view, skis might have the toughest time because one, as David already said, I mean, the shape, is an integral part of the design. So you can't play around too much on that. Second, you get snow all over these things. And so that stuff just gets covered up um, way more than, you know, bikes and, and running shoes do, I think. Um, and, and maybe that's part of the reason why, David, when you asked this question, to me, it is less about the shape itself, certainly, when it comes to design. But this is where I feel like it's so important then for ski manufacturers to really 
do smart things when it comes to their product lines. And that's why I keep wondering, are ski companies out there really thinking 20 years out, 50 years out? And what would it look like to start laying the foundation now to have certain product lines become these kind of iconic, beloved, understood, and let me understand, let me underscore that, understood product lineups, right? And so I'll, I'll pick one, one example from the ski world, you know, that is, I suppose, debatable, not really actually, but like vocal with the mantra series. Now, the mantra is not for everyone. And for the most part, I think on vocals best days, they're okay with that, right? They don't, you know, because when companies start getting nervous, it's like, oh, not everybody should be on a mantra. And then, so then they get nervous and then they want to switch that up to try to make the product that appeals to everyone. Typically a bad idea. And I think that vocal has not fallen prey on that front, right? So that's one example. And there, there certainly are others, but that's one example where if I were to give some advice, Vice, you know, to vocal or some other brands, think about that and think about the positioning of this product lineup where vocal has tweaked, you know, mantras, come out with other widths of the mantra, you know, created a series around it. I think it's smart. And I think that ski companies probably could stand to start thinking longer term, to set themselves up for these lasting product categories, as opposed to what, again, as a generalization, feels like we're just in a dizzying array of like, what's all the new stuff out there? And skiers have to go figure out the entire landscape basically from scratch. I don't see how that's wise from a brand building point of view or for establishing loyalty to a product lineup. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. And particularly on the ski side where you it's sort of, I think, a little more coherent to have, you know, to keep using the mantra lineup, for example, a couple of different widths within a somewhat constrained range, but skis that are similar ish, but you know, the little bit wider, a little bit narrower version of the same thing, that kind of thing. And in some ways, I think my advice to bike companies would almost run a little bit the opposite, where kind of touching on what I said earlier, where I think there are some companies that are doing this really well and some that aren't so much. But there are definitely still companies out there who I think are making a pretty wide swath of bikes that actually ride kind of similarly to each other. And there's definitely a fine line to walk somewhere in the middle, right? You, I can also understand why you wouldn't want to have your whole range of bikes feel wildly different from each other and people just have no idea what to expect on a given bike from a company. But you do need to have some amount of differentiation between the model lineup too. And I think there are companies who, for example, have really clung to, just to use a random example, short chain stays as kind of being their calling card. And I think that works well on bikes that are meant to do certain things doesn't work well on bikes that are meant to do other things and just being a little more thoughtful about 
what a given bike is really supposed to do and whether or not it makes sense to make it be just a little bit scaled up or down version of something else that's in the lineup and in some cases be like no this needs to be more dramatically different would serve them well so let me let me make sure i'm just understanding you on this day because i think we're we're into important point territory here again back to the brewery analogy to me it seems right that a brewery needs to create a great ipa they need to then create a great stout and in a way that should have nothing to do with that ipa i would think it's like what is this brewery's best attempt at a stout or their best attempt at a lager and yes they can have their bit of a spin on that but a brewery that's kind of known for its ipa should not be trying to do an ipa-esque lager am i tracking is this exactly what you're saying or, or yeah that's exactly it that trying to make all of the bikes in a given lineup have too much commonality just makes them kind of weird hybrids of different genres that don't come together well and you're saying that you you noted the example of shorter chain stays is that a dominant characteristic or would it also get into like how slack bikes are so if a company's known for you know maybe got a reputation for building a particularly slack all mountain or enduro bike now even on their shorter travel bikes they're continuing to like be particularly slack on that front yeah that's kind of what i mean it's like they have a given characteristic that they are kind of going all in on across a range of things and that's going to make sense on certain categories of bike and make way less sense on other categories of bike and being more thoughtful about where a given characteristic makes sense and not hitching your brand on having that attribute be applied to the whole range when it's going to work in certain applications and not in others is prudent. Sorry, one more question on this side. You're saying this is a widespread problem in the bike world or maybe not widespread, but something you're seeing here and there. What's the extent of closer to the latter? And I think people are getting better at it, but there's still room for improvement. Matt, you get to advise the entire running shoe industry. What's some of your best advice to companies? What would you like to see these brands doing that you're not currently seeing? Yeah, I mean, I think it gets back to what we talked about earlier in this conversation about um, doing a better job of distinguishing models within your like product line and avoiding redundancy because redundancy, as I said, like does lead to confusion. Um, I also cringe at uh, shoes that are marketed as like a do it all trail shoe. I don't think that exists. Um, So being more thoughtful about, yeah, again, making shoes that are used as tools within a given lineup that complement one another, um, not kind of like repeat one another. We've talked about this actually a lot over the years, I think, on Blister, but kind of trying to hammer this point home to companies in any industry, you got to get over the fear of alienating certain people from a particular product. You have to embrace that not every product you make will be for everyone and lean into that 
and do a better job of articulating what the product you bothered to make does and who it's really for. And I, I don't know. I actually, maybe I'm just feeling nice on a Friday afternoon here. I actually would say that I think, speaking in a gross generalization, I think I'm seeing brands doing a better job of that today than I used to. Then the, you know, the first five years of Blister, we had to say this all the time. And I feel like we, you know, when we drop a, a first look on a product and we're like, this is what the manufacturer says about the product, we used to be like, that was crazy. Like that was the least helpful bit of product information imaginable because it was like, this thing is sick at everything. And then we would just have to write the long review, like actually doing the work of saying, this is where it shines. This is where it doesn't shine. This is who we think, you know, would benefit the most or, or this, this product, this is who the product would work best for. If I rein that in and, and, and go back to just talking about the ski industry, are you two willing to say that you think it's gotten better on in the run world and the bike world better, same or worse than ever? Matt? Oh, man, I think some brands are doing it well and, and others are are trying but aren't as successful. Um, I think the North Face is doing a, a fantastic job and really kind of knowing their audience and, and knowing what their focus should be. Um, they kind of trimmed some of their of models of the past and rolled out a, a very like close crop of shoes this year that are all very distinct. But I mean, Hoka keeps on introducing new models and I'm like, what am I supposed to do with this? You know, it's just not very clear to me. Um, but yeah, I think, as I said, some folks are doing it really well and, and others are still struggling in that area. Bike industry, David, better job than ever, worse job than ever, seem about the same to you. Similar to the ski industry, it's getting better. Um, and I think some of the stuff I said about companies doing a better job of differentiating their different models in terms of how they actually perform, not just in how they're talking about them, has made their lives easier on that front too, because there is clearer delineation between the different bikes. And so it's easier to say how they differ. But along with that, they are talking about it in a better, smarter way too. Yeah. And I, I would say too that um, because trail running is growing so rapidly, companies are just pushing out new models to reflect that. So that's why I would say like on the running side, it, it probably has gotten a little worse just because there's more, more options now. All right. Going to let you guys go in a minute in part because David needs to go get on a bike ride. I'm going to go actually skin a quick lap. Matt, Matt's probably just sitting on the couch. I imagine just uh, cracking a six pack and just watching a bunch of reruns of some terrible movie. No, that's probably not what Matt's doing. Let's circle back to something that we touched on very briefly. Trend chasing. Matt, we said, you, you already said, the running shoe industry is kind of... <laughs> is either winning or losing on this front, but like trend chasing is a big thing in the running industry. Um, I want to get David's take on the bike industry and I'll say some things on this front on the ski side, but Matt, anything more to say that you haven't already said here on the running shoe side of things? Not really. I just think that like trends definitely drive the direction of a lot of brands um, for better or for worse. And I think 
there's more and more of them um, as the sport continues to grow. So I'm curious to see what the next, you know, new phase is going to be of that. Like it was maximal shoes and then it switched back to minimal briefly. And now it's all about like putting a performance plate in a shoe. Um, so curious to see what's next. David, trend chasing in the bike world. I think it's kind of a mixed bag in the bike world where there are for sure trends that crop up and become prevalent. Um, mullet bikes and being a pretty good recent example of it. And then also uh, through headset cable routing, which is one that I am really hoping dies very quickly and swiftly. Um, but and then, you know, to look back a little farther, stuff like plus bikes really had their moment and everyone had to make one. And then those are gone. No one's doing that anymore. Um, but I do think it is by and large the case that companies are being at least a little bit smarter about seeing a trend developing and kind of picking and choosing their spots as to where it makes sense to apply that rather than being like, we're going to make all our bikes mullets now or whatever. Um, so trends happen for sure. Sometimes they're bad, but I think it could be a lot worse too. Yeah. On the ski side of things, something like five years ago, five to eight years ago, there definitely seemed to be a pressure about chasing weight reduction in specifically Alpine equipment. Um, and I feel like, thanks be to God, things are leveling out on that front. I mean, David talked about bikes are getting heavier again. We're seeing, specifically talking about Alpine gear, companies putting weight back into products. I think that's a very positive development for both creating products with good suspension and perhaps more durability, things on those fronts. But then honestly, I think we are at a point in ski design where we've found a formula that works pretty well for skis. So I don't think it's so much trend chasing as agreement. Like, yep, turns out this spectrum of shaping, this range of flex patterns, this overall weight, you put these together and it tends to be a recipe that bakes the best cake type of thing. Great examples, you guys. I mean, Matt, you talking about, you know, carbon plates in every freaking running shoe on earth. David, man, you're bringing me back on the bike industry talking about plus size bikes and, and all the other fads that have, I mean, that's probably the biggest offender of the three industries we are talking about right now. Um, you know, right now, the big one in the ski world is the BOA system on ski boots. And one, I mean, I'll say um, it works. Like, I like the new system, and I will predict that we will see more ski boots going this way. But ultimately, what I predict is we'll just see what sales look like. And if customers just keep buying buckles, then the BOA system will go away. But this is not one of those products where I'm like, I can't believe that this is sort of getting introduced and is a hot topic in the world of ski boots. It's so dumb. That is not my opinion there. And so ultimately the market will decide. It would not shock me if we went back to buckles, but that's not my prediction. I predict we will see more Alpine ski boots uh, adopting 
you know, a, a BOA-esque system. And I guess on a note that's somewhat related to what you just said about the skiing industry kind of converging on just figuring out what works and doing more similar things across brands and models because they've kind of had this collective understanding. I'm seeing very much the same thing on the bike side with suspension design in particular, and you've still got companies that are doing very different layouts, but in part, I think because a lot of the patents on, you know, horse link VPPs expired, DW links slated to expire, I think later this year in part because of that, but also just in part because again, sort of similarly, there's this better understanding of what works. And it's not to say that everything is rides the same or is tuned the same at all, but the width of the spectrum of things that people are doing has narrowed a good bit because kind of the people five, 10 years ago, people were trying all kinds of really weird shit. Some of it didn't work very well. And we've collectively learned what does work and the scope of sort of suspension design attributes that's out there among most companies has not converged to this exact same thing, but it's gotten considerably tighter. Yeah. And I mean, BOA systems have kind of bled over into the running shoe market as well. And I have similar thoughts as to um, their long term viability as you, Jonathan, with ski boots. Say more on that front. No, I mean, I think that like the higher end models of shoes will receive Mm -hmm. bow laces. um, And they're not called laces. They're not called laces, Matt. They get real mad when you say that. Sorry. Yeah, I'm I've I've been. uh, Yeah, censured by by a few of their reps before for that. Um, (laughs) Forgive me. Uh, A few of the higher tier models have received BOA fit systems. Um, and I think their staying power will be dictated by whether or not people buy them. And it'd be cool to see them kind of be applied to more affordable shoes, because ultimately, I think that's what's going to change people's minds about them if there are any reservations. But I, that's tough. But as a generalization, you would like to see them uh, show up on more and more shoes? Yeah. Okay. Totally. I think done the correct way they really work and um i think the the positives far outweigh the negatives i think people are concerned about their durability you know like you can't just buy a new pair of uh like dials Uh, you have to kind of either retire the shoe or or send them back in uh whereas you could just replace the laces in a traditional shoe Um, but in my experience you know i've tested a handful of models um equipped with boa and have never had any issues. This topic of trend chasing actually just made me think of something else, and I want to run this by you guys. Can you think of one or two brands in your the industries you all are representing that have ever dug in to be anti-trend and kind of built their whole marketing and positioning as being the counter, right? I I actually can't off the top of my head think of a ski brand that, I, you know, so this is where we're going to get the comments and I'll be quickly, um, you know, quickly schooled and that's fine. Right in if you can think of the example, but like this would just be interesting, right? As we're talking about establishing an identity, right? Establishing brand identity, how you do that. Well, one way to do it would be to maybe start a running shoe company and come out hardcore 
against carbon plates. But I mean, really lean into that and be like, we aren't doing that. This is an expense that we don't think is justified. We don't think many runners need a carbon plate, but I can't really think of too many brands coming out either as a brand against a thing or just developing product lines that are like, we did this or we're still doing this because we think this advancement, quote unquote advancement or trend is a bad move. Can you guys think of examples? I've got one, which is that probably, I don't know, five-ish years ago, Transition had on their website, on their like product page for every single bike that they made, had this little logo that was like a Duracell battery with the logos removed and it's at a band sign and it said, not an e-bike on right. everything. And of course, they now make two e-bikes. So, so much for that. But they took a stand for a while. Yeah, good good example. I'm trying to think, David... Speaking of carbon frames, I mean, there's some manufacturers are like, we we won't make, we don't make carbon frames, and we're only making, you know, aluminum or steel. But I don't know that any of those brands like really lean into, we are the anti-carbon brand, and this is why we're anti-carbon. Um, not too many. Uh, Pole did they would they're pretty small but uh they had a thing a while ago where they first they started making some aluminum bikes they considered making carbon ones did some analysis and studying it and then put out this statement basically talking about the environmental impacts of carbon particularly and went this is why we're not doing it we're sticking with aluminum um they'd probably be the most prominent one that i can think yeah. of yeah, but but a little bit to my point, right, is we talk about sort of the rise and fall of brands or how new brands develop any traction in an industry. Here, Here's maybe a, a bit of advice, like come out against something, you know, and... And make it headset cable routing, just... <laughs> <laughs> David, you'll be David's new favorite bike company overnight. Um, but it, again, I mean... Um, I'm actually shocked that I can't think of more examples of this in the ski industry where it's just like, yeah, this is who we are. We're a small company um, and we don't think these trends, you know, in gear design are productive. So we don't do them. I'd like to actually see more companies do this and make for a more interesting landscape, I think. I've been updating our brand guides on the run side and yeah, it's virtually non-existent over here. Uh, I don't think there's any holdouts, unfortunately, or fortunately. Okay. Well, maybe that's our final bit of advice uh, to brands or any young companies trying to figure out or, or old companies, right? I mean, come out and tell us what you're against. That could be a compelling strategy. We're also saying definitely don't just be like, we built these products. They're great for everyone of any ability level for all times and all conditions. Don't do that. Maybe come out against some things. And then, you know, of the stuff you are building, get specific, be clear. Yep. That's pretty good. It's pretty good. Okay. Well, gentlemen, that was fun. Thanks for, um, thinking through a few ideas with me and uh, 
I will now let you on this Friday evening. I'm going to go ski. David's going to go ride bikes. Matt, are you going to actually hit the trifecta here? Tell us you're going to go on a run now. Oh, I ran this morning. I'm going to go rewatch Heat <laughs> and drink a beer, I think. <laughs> oh, my God. G- greatest movie ever. Okay. Well, then I'm not going to be mad at you for that. Uh, that sounds amazing. And I love that, of course, you went and like ran this morning. So, um, you're, yeah. The action is the juice. The action is the juice, Matt. That's right. Don't you ever forget it. Um, thank you. It's always fun talking with you guys. Um, I always appreciate your perspectives on this stuff. And, um, I hope that this conversation just leaves some people thinking a bit harder. I mean, industry people for sure, but I kind of have a hunch that, you know, we have a lot of listeners in all kinds of different, uh, you know, job categories of life. And and I think these questions about branding and creating something lasting, um, it probably actually translates way broader than, you know, our ski run and bike industries here so thanks for working through this thought experiment with us and then tomorrow tuesday you will be able to catch matt mitchell on his off the couch podcast and then david golay on thursdays that's on bikes and big ideas and then actually david this friday over on gear 30 we're gonna be back in conversation because we're bringing back bikes versus skis. This was kind of the big macro conversation about branding and what's going on. Bikes versus skis, we are going to go in the weeds and do this exercise we do of trying to figure out what bike companies and what bike brands seem to be closest to which ski brands and vice versa. So always a fun exercise to kind of creates surprising uh insights i think from that one so um that's uh, a few of the things we got going this week over at blister so enjoy everybody and we will talk to you real soon well that's it for this edition of the blister podcast i want to say thanks to matt and david for the conversation thanks to taylor ahern for producing this episode and thanks to you for listening and let us know what you think Do you have different advice, different things you'd like to see manufacturers in the outdoor industry doing? Things specific to the ski industry or the bike industry or the running industry that you like, trends you like, trends you don't like? Let us know in the comments section. And then finally, don't forget our Blister Plus membership and injury insurance I know a lot of you are out there because you, you've emailed me about this or I bump into you and you say, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm definitely going to sign up for that. I need to sign up for that. Well, go sign up now because the way this works is you need to sign up before you get hurt. That's how insurance coverage works, right? So if you're thinking about doing it, you know it's a good idea. Pull the trigger on this and that will likely be the smartest thing you do today. Just just a hunch. All right, everybody. Thanks for listening. Talk to you soon.